0: Welcome to the Story Night Podcast, a place where we share hearts, our hurts, and how God's wonder
1: intersects with the story of our lives, a ministry of Calvary Mac. Here's our host, Jessica Campbell. Hi ladies and welcome back to the Story Night podcast. I'm very excited for you to meet my guest tonight, Stacy, because for those of you who have been listening for a while, you have already met somebody named Julie and Julie Bond Blank shared her story with us. She actually was on the podcast twice, so hopefully you've heard both of her episodes. And through Julie, I got to meet Stacy, and you will hear all about her story and all about what she's doing and how she's connected to Julie in this episode. Uh, but first of all, for anyone who's new, thank you so much for tuning in. Welcome to the story night podcast. And this podcast is about real women sharing real stories of real hope. So thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this story and we hope you found a new podcast that you just love and want to hear all the other stories as well. Stacy, thank you so much for joining us and for being willing to share your story. And as always, we're going to start with just a real brief introduction and let you say hello to the listeners. Okay.
0: Well, hello, I'm Stacy Wilmack, and I am a mother of six and grandmother to 12 and I'm also the founder and executive director of abuse recovery ministry and services.
1: Abuse Recovery Ministry Services is also known as ARMS. And listeners, you will hear all the details about that, especially toward the end of the episode. We'll explain everything that this program does. We'll include links and all of that. But I think immediately what comes to mind is, oh my goodness, how did you how did you get there? How did you get involved in such an important ministry? For those who have been listening for a while, you're, you're starting to maybe notice that several of the women have come on here and talked about abuse. Some of them, it's their personal life stories. Some of them are mothers who have watched their daughters go through this. So we know everyone gets to caring about this in different ways. So we're going to start at the beginning with your story, Stacey, and find out how you got to being the founder of ARMS.
0: Yeah, so um, I am a born and raised Oregonian. Um my father is a pastor, so I was born into a Christian home. I'm the youngest of three kids and I had a, a really pre-sheltered childhood. I was a I, I've always been kind of that good girl doing the good girl kinds of things to do and I didn't really know what direction God wanted for me. You know, when I was a child, I actually didn't give much thought to what I wanted to do when I grew older. But God knew what he was doing. So I can remember at like 15, laying in bed going, God, I have no testimony. Because I heard about all these women or men who had gone through all these really difficult situations and how they came to Christ. And here I was, you know, at six years old, having conversations with God or having conversations with God with them, 11 years old, cleaning my closet. And God's talking to me about how he gave me the gift of administration. And I told him that was really boring. And I already knew that. And I didn't want to be a secretary and he better gave me something creative to do because that definitely wasn't the way I wanted to go. So, you know, for me, it was always just like this close walk with God. And at 16, my father was involved with an outreach and a gentleman who was nationally known as someone who kind of gave like words from God to people at one of the big centers in Portland, you know, the Keller Auditorium, actually in Portland, Oregon he was speaking and my dad took me to this event and then afterwards took me behind the stage. I always felt very important when I got to go to things like this, but uh, this man wrote out these scriptures for me. And as a family, we sat down and, and we opened the Bible and I was so excited to find out what were these scriptures about. And there were all these scriptures about how I would know God's will how I'd always know God's will rather than turn to the right or the left, uh, you know, trust in the Lord with all your heart and he'll direct your steps, all those kinds of scriptures. And I thought, well, how boring is that? I mean, really seriously, but God, again, knew what he had planned for me. And so I finished school halfway through my junior year. My dad had started a Christian school where you could move at your own pace. And I'd really kind of outgrown it a little bit, but when you get done partway through school sooner than your friends, I was kind of lost. I mean, I didn't my dad had, was in the middle, had just left the church that he had been at, where the, the school was at. And I'd lost really my friends because our lives didn't relate anymore. And so I was in this really lonely place, really, really didn't know where I fit for a while. I actually met my husband shortly after that <laughs> and I, I, I met him and I went home after meeting him and ask God if he was someone that was going to be important in my life. I, because I'd had other guys interested in her. I was 16. I really was a serious person. So it was like, I really didn't have a lot of boyfriends. I really had only had one other boyfriend besides my husband and had gone on a few dates, but didn't, I just knew like right away whether it was that person was the right one. And I wasn't into playing any games. So Unfortunately, I think I broke a few hearts on the long way. But that night, God told me that He was someone that was going to be important in my life. And that I didn't know that He was going to be my future husband. It was funny because my sister told me that my parents called her after meeting Him the first night when He came over to pick me up and called her, giggling and saying they thought they had just met my future husband. So he's four years older than me. So, you know, there's that. And here I was, you know, 16. And uh, but we knew within just, uh, gosh, probably within three or four months that we would get married. I was 17 by then. I knew for sure that I needed to wait a little bit. It was, you know, I told him he had to wait till I was 20 because, you know, I need to figure out what I wanted to do with my life and all of that. And I started going to uh community college to become a uh, designer, like an artistic d- d- designer for, you know, something I thought I could do at home and have kids, which is kind of funny that I was thinking that way since I didn't even like babysitting, but I was still thinking, what could I have do and be at home? And I remember having this conversation with God, my second term driving into the, the college and God goes, what do you know for sure? And I said, well, I know I, I'm supposed to marry this man. I know I'm supposed to have children and I know I'm supposed to stay home with them. And that was that was all I needed to know. So I dropped out of the college and we got engaged and then we married shortly after I turned 18. My father married us. And so I'm the youngest first one married in my family. My sister used to joke, Well, you know, you're gonna be a really young grandma. And I said, Yeah, I'll be a, but I'll be a good looking grandma. So <laughs>
1: Now, no yeah. one else can see you because this is audio, but truly it, for any lady who got to meet you in person, they would never know you were a grandma.
0: Yeah. Well, um, I try to eat plenty of preservatives. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, my ministry, we got pregnant. I had baby fever the moment we were engaged. And so we got pregnant right away. I mean, I was begging my husband and he was like, give me a year. And I'm like, okay, that's a fair ask. So, but within a, a few weeks he was going, okay. So we had our first child 11 days before our first anniversary. <laughs> and of course I looked very young. So I had all these women coming up to me like, oh my gosh, are you pregnant? And I'm like, yes, I'm seven months pregnant. Can't you tell? So, you know, when I went in to have to the doctor, like it this planned?" And I'm like, yes, it's planned. Uh, and then I just, I was very fortunate to have easy pregnancies and quick deliveries. My first child was born in four hours. Someone from my church had come up to me a couple, well, I guess I was already a couple days late and said they'd had their first baby in four hours. And I, I remember telling my husband as we were getting into the car that I didn't have faith to believe for that. But I was just praying that everything would go smoothly. And I think God was preparing me because that was scary. I mean, I, you talk about no early labor, no anything. You just go right into active labor. And so I think God was preparing me. So after I had that first baby, uh, I was like, I want to do that again. So <laughs> I had my second child 15 months later. And uh, most of them are 21 uh, months apart. Although after our fourth child was born, We found out that our second daughter had cancer. She had a tumor in her eye, something that usually happens in infancy. But here she was five and I was homeschooling back in the day when nobody even knew what homeschooling was. And I could see the light reflecting out of her eye. And so my husband was like, you need to get her into a doctor. And so that was very quick, literally sent from the doctor's office. I didn't have a car because we only had one car. My dad's driving me around sent us straight to another specialist. And we just, then I got a call that night. It's always scary when you get a call from the doctor at night, right? It's like after hours. And uh, they wanted her to come in and to the eye Institute and have a, a CAT scan and all these things. And it was on her birthday. On the day we were having her birthday party, she was turning five. And I said, Can't I, can we push it out of day? And he said, no. So I literally took her from our birthday party to the doctor and uh in less than a week she had she had surgery she had the eye removed unfortunately the eye is a very good container of a tumor so she ended up not having to have any type of cancer treatment beyond that. Um it was still extremely traumatic. They consider the loss of an eye greater than the loss of a limb. So uh it was it was a pretty big ordeal and then we had to go through the whole process of having a, an eyepiece made and that was crazy. So uh, life went on. I I thought we were done. We we had two girls and two boys, and we really thought we were done. So it put all our our kids at risk, 1% risk of kids, of any of our kids and grandkids or or future kids, great-grandchildren, getting the same type of cancer. And so we thought we were done. I remember being very depressed. We had a lot of financial struggles. We lost a car. We lost our phone. And I just, I remember just being extremely depressed and laying on my bed and asking God to send somebody to me because I, I didn't know what to do. and I was just so alone and, um, and God's going, I'm right here. I'm right here. So, um, and then I found out I was pregnant and unexpectedly. So that was very surprising, but at the same time, God told me this baby was going to be my joy baby. So we named that son Isaac, <laughs> so it Damien's laughter, and he truly was that for us. And then we got pregnant again, and uh, I told my husband to stop telling church that we were ha- done having babies, because every time we'd go up to dedicate a baby, he'd say, we're done. I'm like, please don't say that again. So we really were done at six. So uh, I homeschooled all my kids all the way through high school. They all graduated at 16 with a high school state certified high school diploma. Uh, There's good things and bad things with that. Uh, The hard things about that is that they think they're an adult. They can have their license, their driver's license. They're done with high school. And they think they shouldn't have to follow any of the rules. But at the same time, a lot of my kids were able to do um, some college from home. And that put them ahead when they actually went off to college and that type of thing. So um, I loved homeschooling. That was, And just being home with my kids, I I just felt so called to that. I, I remember have a pastor telling me, I haven't met many women who were called to motherhood and I was called to motherhood. That was just something that God had called me to. So I had all of my kids by the time I was 27. So my oldest was still eight when I had my sixth. So, so they were all very close in age, but it was in the mix of raising my children um, that God began to speak to me about ministry beyond my family. And I didn't tell anybody that God was speaking to me about this was kind of like me and God's secret. And kind of at the time, a lot of people in our church were talking about how they were called to ministry. We had really dynamic pastors at the time. And so a lot of people were just really drawn to that. And so I thought, well, maybe there's a did I really hear God? Maybe, I don't know. Is this just a bad that's going on right now? What's going on? So, but God just kept speaking to me about this ministry, but never told me what it was. Just kind of told me these broad statements, like you're going to be helping a lot of people. And so I um, didn't tell anybody for a year and a half. And then I finally told a pastor and he said, you've been known for a year and a half and you haven't done anything. And I went home and I said, God, I've known for a year and a half and I haven't done anything. And God said, not yet. And um, in the midst of this, my father unexpectedly passed away. And that was very hard, probably the most influential person in my life. And my mother had always struggled with chronic depression and same, some anxiety personality uh, issues. And so uh, she's never really lived an independent uh, life because of those issues. And so we were, my siblings and I would love to like take care of her. And I remember we were we were going to have to do this estate sale and all that. It was a, it was a big deal. So God was speaking to me about this. And then the first thing he asked me to do is to go to a conference. So I, and I went to my pastors. I thought it was going to be a women's conference for our denomination, an international women's conference. So I went to my pastor and I asked about it and they said, Oh no, 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 it's not a women's conference. It's, it's for pastors, missionaries, evangelists. So I didn't even ask any more about it. I just thought I heard God wrong. So at this point, God had been giving me themes for each year. And that year was 1997 was, this is your year of release. Uh, I had no idea what that meant. Uh, but when I went home and a couple of days later, got our denominational magazine in the mail. And it, on the front of it, it said 1997, the year of release. And I thought, okay, I'm supposed to go to this conference. So I went back and I talked to them. And I said, can I go? Because I'm not a pastor, I'm not a missionary, not an evangelist. I'm just a mom. And they said, yeah, they could send, you know, one person for so many people who attended the church. I immediately felt like the enemy just came in and was the, discouraging me saying, you know, how could you do this? Because we struggled so much financially. How could you do this? Even if God does provide, how could you take this money when your family has so many financial needs? And I remember going home and crying and telling God, it's not my responsibility to figure out how to pay for this. And I had never flown before. I had never gone anywhere by myself before because I married so young. You know, it's like I just had my little safe family, my little safe church, my little safe friends. And now God was requiring me to deal with my own fears and get out of my comfort zone. And so in my faithful moments, I would pull out the paperwork and I'd fill it out and then I'd shove it back in the drawer. And then then I I get up enough courage that I actually, you know, called and made uh, a reservation at the hotel was going to be in Cincinnati, Ohio, and uh, I didn't even have a credit card. I had to use my sister's credit card <laughs> so <laughs> to reserve this place, you know, so I and, and my husband and I had decided that we needed to have me. Fly with somebody because I'd never done this before, but I couldn't get anybody from my own church, even though one of my pastors was speaking for my church at this conference. uh, and or from the other churches that my dad knew people at. I didn't, they didn't know me. So they didn't want to give me their flight schedules. (laughs) And my church sent me, or they called me up and said, Stop all your planning and come to this meeting. I thought, okay, they're going to tell me not to go, and that's fine. Or they're going to give me their flight schedule. So I go to this meeting and my friend I have some friends there because our our church was really involved in using drama with their sermons. So they were actually taking a a group to do a skit with the drama with our pastor who was speaking. So uh, our lead pastor looked at me and he says, well, Stacy, why do you want to go to this? I'm like, well, um, God told me to. (laughs) And that was it. That was all he asked me. I think they thought that I was just going to hang out with them. That that was my goal was just to go hang out with them. And then I just sat there listening to the rest of my friends going, we're so honored that we're invited. We're so honored that we're invited. And you have to understand that I've been arguing with God, how I'm not a pastor, not a missionary, not an evangelist. I'm just a mom. So now I go home and I'm crying again, which I'm not a big cry, but I cry when I go through these stretching times. And I said, God, I'm not a pastor, not a missionary, not an evangelist. And I'm not even invited. So I'm just like, oh my gosh. Yeah, I looked down and my Bible was open and there was a, this verse about how great God is. And he just said to me, Stacy, I'm above this convention. If anybody asks you why you're there, you tell them that you're there on my invitation. So my sister had frequent flyer miles and she booked my flight. Um, they messed up on it and did not get my connecting flight in uh, Chicago O'Hare. If you know how big an uh, airport that is. It's a huge airport. And so my first flight was a red-eye flight. And it was my sister gave me all her dress up clothes because I only had mom clothes. So she gave me all these like fancy clothes. I was so overpacked, so overdressed because at the time it was kind of really at that time where if you dress nicer, they treat you a little bit better. It's kind of that crossover now. It doesn't matter. But so I'm dressed in this like suit, pencil skirt, high heels at midnight, at midnight. okay, the time has just changed. So I've just lost an hour of sleep. And now I'm flying east. I'm losing another three hours of sleep at the, I didn't know up from down, I, my, my connecting flight, I had like 35 minutes and I'm running through the O'Hare airport in high heels and a pencil skirt, trying to get to my connecting flight. If you don't do it, if you ever do it, blisters on my feet. Okay. So I get to Cincinnati and we didn't have a lot of money. And my husband would try to tell me like who to tip and what to do and what to not do all these things that I was supposed to do, you know? And so I'm like trying to wrangle this way huge suitcase off of the carrier you know that brings your suitcases out and this really large guy he he asked me if i wanted some help and i'm like no because i'm thinking i'll have to tip him and i you know i gotta save my tip money so he's sitting there watching me do this he finally just comes over and picks all of my luggage up which is a lot and just looks at me and says where do you want to go and i said well i need to go get a bus ticket so he takes me over to the bus counter I get a bus ticket and now I'm trying to wrangle all his luggage out this door to get across the street to the buses. And he just comes over, picks it all up again, takes it over to the bus. And before I can turn around, he's already gone. So I I can't. (laughs) I did so many things to embarrass myself on that trip because I hadn't traveled before. Uh, Really embarrassing things that my husband couldn't stop laughing over and I couldn't stop crying over. And now I look back and they were funny. But during this, uh, and this is a long story, but during this time, I, I went to the conference and I'm used to eating with, you know, seven other people and no one asked me not in those five days I was there to have lunch with them or dinner with them. I'd just go back to my room and I usually slept because <laughs> so I tired with my six kids and all that and, and by myself, but God kept using the people at the conference to speak words of truth to me of what God's plans were for me, but not clear. Again, it was like, one of my concerns was I didn't want a ministry that was going to negatively impact my children. And so I remember they had this time and said, turn around and pray with the person who you're next to. And, and it was always the leaders among the leaders who God put me in front of. So I was standing there with some people who were way, to, way up in the denomination. And they had this word for me, how it would never be a detriment to my family and several other things. And then then af- after the person spoke, they said, anybody wants to come forward for prayer, come forward for prayer. Well, I was just going to get it all. So I went forward for prayer. And the gal repeated, who prayed for me repeated the exact same words they had just prayed for me and that God had given them. And that gentleman who gave me those those scriptures back when I was 16 was one of the speakers. And I felt like Part of my reason for going there was that he was supposed to give me another word. So uh, he spoke one morning. And of course, I wasn't one of the people who was picked. There's 2,000 people there. Okay, so I wasn't one of the people picked or you know that he does just out of the audience. But they said, hey, there's 200 tickets in the back. And for the first 200 people get the tickets at this time, at this place, you can go and 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 he'll have a word for you. And so by the time I got to the back, because I was sitting in the front, there was no tickets left. So I went back, I well, one of my pastors came up and said, didn't you say that this was one of the reasons? So he he actually kind of forced me back to the front of the stage, but uh, I didn't get to speak with the gentleman who was speaking. So I went back to my room and I cried, of course, you know, going through the stretching thing. And then I went down and I, I ate a lunch and God began to speak to me. He says, you know, why don't you walk over there? And I'm like, because I knew exactly where it was, what room, what time, all of that. So I decided to walk over the convention hall and, and I, I get there, nobody else is there, but they have a guard in front of the door with a headpiece on. And I thought, oh, I can't do this. And he made eye contact with me and I made eye contact with him and I just kept walking and God stopped me and he says, what can you do but tell you no. So I walked over to him and I said, this is what God told me. And and he knew my father and he goes, he didn't know what to do with me. So he sent me down to the guard at the door, at the actual door. So now I'm starting to tell this guy the story again. And he stops and he says, "Nope, there's absolutely no way. nope, nope, nope." So I just start my story again. I just said, I, I believe I'm supposed to be, you know, and I didn't know what to do. He didn't know what to do with me. And so he goes, okay, we'll just stand on the other side of the hall. And now people are coming and I'm standing there and I'm feeling so foolish. I'm going, God, I feel like such a fool. I feel like such a fool. But just as I was doing this and a few people had gone through the door into the room and a couple came up and they'd both taken tickets and they only needed one per couple. So they gave me their extra ticket and I was able to go in. And this man gave me this word about how first thing he said was, Stacy, you're going to need to get your phone number unlisted because you're going to get called day and night. And he said that, um, you know, that I was going to be helping people turn their sorrows into joy, especially for women. And that was it. So still, not a clear picture, but every single word, I mean by the end of the 5 days, God showed me that everybody who had spoken a word over me had been on the stage, they all had been leaders among leaders, and God had just confirmed his word to me over and over again. So I went home and I'm all excited, I'm like I'm ready, God. And we were just in the middle of doing my my parents estate sale and he goes, "Could you really handle more right now?" And I'm like, "I guess not." And so we got done with that and a few months later in the summer of 1997, God woke me up in the middle of the night. And he said, what have I been telling you? So I reviewed all the things he'd been telling me and I knew it was going to involve some speaking. And I just kind of reviewed those things. And then I said, God, what do you want me to do? And it was like the millionth time I'd asked him. And he said, I want you to enter a pageant for married women. I'm like, what? I I I don't even know if that's a thing. I've never done pageants before. I don't, know. I don't know anything about this. So the presence of God was so strong. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't have done anything. But the next morning, I knew something. If I didn't do something that morning, I would be I would chicken out and I wouldn't do anything at all. So I went to my church. I asked for the address of the woman who was a former Miss America had spoken at her women's retreat. And they said, she's, moved. we don't know where she lives now, but here's her old address. So I wrote this woman a letter. I I told her I'm not a crazy woman and that this is what God told me to do. And I don't know where to begin. So I mailed it to her and I immediately felt embarrassed. I told God I would give it three weeks. Otherwise I would assume I'd heard him wrong, but I was so glad that I was never going to meet this woman because I felt so embarrassed about sending this letter. I only told my husband and one other person. I think my husband thought I was a little crazy too. Cause I, I, I mean, it's just the craziest thing. Then I, God told me, I want you to fast. And yeah, I want you to fast for two weeks. And I have never been successful at fasting. Unless God tells me to, I had just got done running hood to coast, which is a 197 mile relay race. Uh, so I was leaner than I am even now. And if you could see me, I'm, I'm thin. So it's like, I I was more in shape then, but I, I was leaner then. And I was like, God, I'll die. I, I like eating and I can't do this. So after arguing with God for a few days, I, I decided to do a liquid fast, all liquids. And I began my, my fast, I guess I need to back up a little bit because I actually did receive something back from her within three weeks. And, uh, in there, she sent me a couple of things. One was an audio tape on how to know the will of God. Cause maybe I, I wasn't hearing God's will for my life. Uh, and then she sent me a pageantry magazine. I didn't even know they had them. It's like a book. And they have hundreds of pageants for all different ages and sizes and all kinds of things. So it's like a hobby, a very expensive hobby. So I spent the next week arguing with God, looking at the teeth whitening and laser surgery and telling God that I was busy. I have six kids. It was the first year I was homeschooling all six of them. I said, I don't want to do this. I'd throw it on the floor. Every time i go back in the room, i pick it back up, throw it back on the floor, telling God, I don't want to do this. And he said, Stacy, you promised me. So I I sat down and I wrote just just three of the married women's pageants. And that's when I started the fast. And so on the first day of my fast, I got a phone call from one of the pageants saying they had already filled the Mrs. Oregon position. I was yes, one down, two to go because I did not want to do this thing. And uh, a week and a half into the fast, I was taking my older kids to uh, junior high and high school thing that they had after school at the church. And. And God and I were just having this conversation as I was praying silently. And he said, you know, Stacy, a lot of people ask for ministry. And then somebody from the church comes to them and says, we need help in the the nursery. And they go, oh, no, no, no. I'm sure that's not what God meant for ministry. And he goes, you know, Stacy, you know, if you do something because it makes you feel good, makes you look good, uh, that's selfish ambition. And he goes, you don't get to pick the ministry. I get to pick the ministry. And so I I went home, I picked up the mail and in the mail was this newsletter from one of the pageants and they mentioned God and ministry, but I didn't really connect what was going on. I said, well, God, I'm going to call them today. But before I could call them, they called me and I found out it was a Christian woman who Uh, The pageant was a fundraiser for her ministry to help women walk their healing process from abuse. I knew the moment I talked to her that it was about her nonprofit. It was about what she was doing for her nonprofit. It really wasn't about the pageant, but I still had to do the pageant because that was part of God's command to me. And I remember calling a friend and saying, it was kind of like a mentor. And I said, do you think this is really God? I mean, would He really ask me to do this kind of thing? And she says, well, aren't you glad that you aren't like one of the prophets he asked to walk through the streets naked? You know, so, because it just seems so crazy, such a crazy thing. And I was so embarrassed. I had to raise funds for this. I didn't, we didn't have money to do this. I remember I had to, I had to buy my sash. I mean, I became Mrs. Oregon Globe by sending in my grocery money. <laughs> That's so it, that's how glamorous I am. Okay. But I had to buy my sash and it was a hundred dollars back then. Okay. That's expensive. And I remember calling, cause I, ha- I actually got a speaking engagement uh, before the pageant, which was only a couple months away. And I remember calling them cause I wanted to know the actual absolute latest time I could order it by, but for some crazy reason, they said, well, we could have it ready for you, you know. You know, we can get that done for you this week. And I'm like, okay, well, I don't have the money today, but I'll have it tomorrow. I got off the phone. I'm like, what the heck are you saying? Space, you never spend money you don't have. So, you know, I'm like, God, what do I do? So I got my someone gave my very first donation, was hundred dollars And so it covered the cost of the sash. And, you know, from there, God just as I shared my story and I always shared all the details of the story before I ever got to the pageant because I was so embarrassed about the pageant. I was so worried that everybody was would think that I was doing it just to make myself look good when in reality, I was terrified of it and it was super scary. Mm-hmm. And I needed everything from my shoes to my airline tickets to my nails to everything. Don't need it because we didn't have the money to do this thing. So so I, I end up heading out to Palm Beach, California, where the pageant was being held. Uh, I did this pageant. I was the only one there who had never done a pageant before. I had to walk around the one- runway. We had to practice our little dance thing that we did before. We had to do an interview. And I did the interview. And i that's where I felt like I really bombed because I had really been honest with people why I was doing this. And then when they asked me there, I couldn't seem to get it out. And that was the day before the actual pageant. And I felt like I'd failed God. And that's why when I came home, I felt so disconnected because I just felt this disconnect from God. And I finally, after a week, said, God, what's wrong? And he said, "Stacy, you cared more about what man thought than what I thought. I said, God, you're right. I don't ever want to do that again. I understood that what God wanted me to do was to start this nonprofit that dealt with domestic violence.
1: What's so amazing is how creative God is with how he gets us from point A to point B. Because looking at your story, his purpose was not for you to become a professional in the pageant world. That was not what he was calling you to do. He was not saying, I want you to go compete in every Miss America and Miss Universe. But he used that I think in a test of obedience, because like you said, it was such a crazy command request for you to do that. But that led you to this nonprofit and really started the whole journey into your passion and your work with survivors of abuse.
0: First 1997, when I started, so I really knew nothing about domestic abuse at the time, uh, 25 years ago. It was just uh, the beginning really... What happened is I started this and that first year really didn't do much of anything except have a couple small luncheons for victims of abuse. And then after the first year, God said it's time to actually uh, start a group. And then I had that first meeting and I had three women show up and I remember just reading it to him and not knowing if they were even getting it. They were so quiet. And afterwards I was like, okay, so, um, Why don't you just share whatever you want to share and then we'll pray. And then the women started talking about, oh my gosh, this is my life. This is what I experienced. Because again, this wasn't my story. I hadn't experienced abuse. And, and a lot of women asked me that first year. In fact, I got asked over and over, how can you do this when you haven't experienced it? But God really spoke to me about, you know, Stacy, Jesus served everyone, even though he didn't go through everything. And so Here I am, we started it, meeting monthly, and very quickly, uh, God closed the door with that other organization and gave me the name of Recovery Ministry and Services, and we were incorporated and had a nonprofit status within three months. So that brings us to where we are now, where uh, my kids are all grown. Um, They were not quite all grown when I was starting this and working out of my home as a volunteer. And then after five years, we moved it into an actual office. And from there, once we got our own nonprofit status, we were quadrupling in the number of leaders we were training and locations we were offering, starting in in Oregon and Southwest Washington, and then up to North Washington, and then to Idaho, and then to, and it just began to grow organically. It wasn't me pushing it. It was more like, oh my gosh, God's just throwing this thing forward. And, And a couple of years after we started, I thought, well, gosh, we're offering this program for women of faith, but what are we doing for men of faith who are struggling with using abusive behaviors? So my husband and I began training for what's called domestic violence intervention or batter's intervention. This is before states had laws around this. It was kind of the beginning of the movement of this, but there was a lot of trainings that were coming out and a lot of organizations that were willing to help us. And I I began to sit down and actually write the materials just like I had our women's recovery program, which is a 15-week program, but the women can join in any time, start at any time. But the men's program is very different from that. It's a process group and they have to do an intake and they have to pay fees and they have to attend regularly and do homework and read books. And it's a long program. So we began to offer that our first year. We just did voluntary guys. Uh, Usually the, the women from the group sent them to us. As, as, a, as a boundary saying, for us to be able to make it, you need to go to this program, you need to make progress for us to be able to make it. So we filled one group and very quickly had to add another group. And then they kind of dwindled because voluntary clients don't have anybody really holding their feet to the fire. And so it's a, it's a little bit harder with them sometimes. But that was good for us to have that experience because then I could go to the county and I asked them, what do you need from me so that we can contract with corrections in our community? And here we are overtly Christian in a, in an area that is very liberal and God gave us favor. And so uh, we're contracted with three the three largest counties in Oregon and providing the service to those counties and being overtly Christian in our approach. We also have a way to train people for her journey and for our intervention programs. We added a, another program shortly after that for women who use abusive behaviors who are also have experienced abuse. So they're what we most of them are what we would call secondary aggressors. So they're using abuse, but not getting control with it. doesn't make it okay, but that's, that's why we're, we're doing it. So I've had these opportunities to go speak and to share and uh, nationally. And, you know, I have over the last few years, it's kind of been, you know, a lot of people have been talking about abuse domestic abuse, but not very many people seem to be like doing it. So you can get like these really like highly educated people who can do these amazing talks on domestic violence. But we were the feet on the ground. We were we were the arms (laughs) reaching out. So that's the calls that people started making to me. It's like, how do we do this? Because you seem to be like the ones who doing this and we're we're running into this in you know, uh, recovery admissions and in pregnancy centers. And we don't know what to do. And you, you have a curriculum that's working that you're having great success with. So what do we, how can we do this too? So we actually moved our training process to online, which was an interesting turn of events in itself, because at 20 years of doing this, I was burnt out and I had had a really, really rough year and I was ready to quit. And really two days before our banquet, which is always the first weekend in October, I wasn't sleeping and I was crying and I was trying to figure out how I could quit without hurting the organization. So I finally decided I needed to to take a sabbatical. And that's hard when you're a small staff. My husband actually had begun working with us full-time. So he became my interim, which is hard in and of itself because for two reasons, one, I watched how it drained him. And two, he would talk about it when he came home and that didn't help me. Uh, At the time, but it was still good for me to do this. And I had a a consultant tell me, Stacey, organizations that are 20 years old don't grow unless the CEO changes, which is me. So I heard him. And so I went to God and I said, God, am I still where you want me to be? Because it's okay, God, if you got somebody else, if there's somebody else that needs to be in this place and that's fine, I just need to know. And God made it very clear that nothing about my calling had changed. So when I came back to work, I knew I needed to change and I knew the organization needs to change, but I had no idea what that looked like. And this was, this is what God planned on doing. He had all these national organizations start reaching out to us. So we had to come up with this way to do it online. So we got a grant. I was super excited about it because we had organizations wanting to partner with us. And so we got a year's practice of doing this online before COVID hit. So God's perfect timing of helping us to, to get this figured out. Although we're still working on getting, you know, making it better and and improving and and all of that. So it's just continued to grow. And I'm, you know, just I'm so purpose driven. Like I said, you know, like marrying my husband, I knew that's what God wanted me to do. I knew I was supposed to have children. I knew I was supposed to stay home with them. I knew I was supposed to homeschool them. There was no shadow of doubt. So even in all of our financial struggles, I didn't even consider getting a job it wasn't that i didn't do little things to make money for us but i knew i wasn't supposed to get into a job because i knew i was where god wanted me to be and that is i think uh for anybody who's listening to know that that is such a, a, an amazing place to be and i it, to know that you're doing exactly what god has called you to do and i can't say it's been easy it's been very hard But knowing that I am where God wants me to be is what has sustained me because I still have all the life stuff that everybody else has going on with kids, adult children, you know, who've made poor choices, who, who've had bad things happen to them. You know, it's been very difficult in the midst of me doing this. Both my daughters married men who were abusive, you know, so here I am doing this work in there and watching my own daughters have to go through this. So it's, it hasn't been easy, but when you know you're doing what God has called you to do, that's, that's a secure place. And even though it's worrying, it's a secure place to know that God has me where he wants me to be.
1: You've had a life that's obedient to God. And I know there are so many that hear you say that you've had these conversations with God or even an argument with God and that God has told you to do A, B, or C, and that you've been obedient. And honestly, I think there's so many people that don't have any idea what that actually looks like tangibly. Mm-hmm. Like they might even be sitting there thinking, what do you mean God told you that? Did you hear his voice? Did you just hear it in your mind? And I mean, especially for something like him telling you to find a pageant for married women. I mean, that is one of those that's just so specific. I don't know if you can even explain to listeners what that relationship is like where you can even hear that from God.
0: Yeah, I, I think that it takes time and I have kids say, mom, I don't hear God like you hear God. And that's okay. I guess I want everybody to know that's okay. God speaks to people in different ways. So sometimes it's as you're reading your Bible and that verse that just jumps out at you. Sometimes it's listening to your Christian radio and that phrase, it just speaks to you. Sometimes it's the pastor's, you know, preaching and you just know that that word is just the right word for you. I think that in the beginning of a relationship with God, we do all the talking and God is completely okay with that. He really is okay with us doing all the talking. And I think that one of the first times I remember it was, it's like a, a whisper of a thought that comes into my head. And I remember thinking, Oh, was that God? You know, it was just a whisper of a thought. And then sure enough, it happened. And, you know, that learning to listen for his voice. And there's times that I feel very dry and I don't feel like I hear anything at all. So it's not like I like have these long conversations with God every day, but there's been moments where it's been specific, more specific when we need it. I think most often is when we, we have those times that it's a little clearer. And I think that we have a lot of crazy noise around us all the time in our thoughts. So for me, sometimes it's just as I'm waking up are falling asleep. So my mind is quiet and it doesn't last very long. So when I wake up, it's like, it's not long before I'm thinking about what do I need to do today? What do I need to make for dinner? And now I can't even hear his voice anymore because I'm, I'm too busy. I can't tell you how many good conversations I've had while I'm scrubbing the bathroom floor, you know, when I'm mind, my mind doesn't really have to think about anything, but scrubbing the floor. So I, I think it's something that you can develop. And I recently heard uh, Sheila Walsh at a conference that I went to and she told the story about how, you know, sometimes the mother sheep will reject their baby sheep. And when that happens, those sheep will die of a broken heart, not because they're not fed. So the, the sheep herder has to, the shepherd has to take that sheep in and not just feed it, but hold it up against its chest so it can hear its heartbeat. And they do that until the, the sheep is strong enough to go out into the fold. And she said, her favorite part is when the sheep herder or the shepherd goes out to the, the fence and they they go sheep, 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 sheep. And she says, the sheep know the their voice. And she goes, the first ones to come to the, to the shepherd are the ones that the shepherd had to hold to his heart. And I thought that was such a beautiful picture because Jesus said the the sheep will know his voice. And so it, it doesn't have to be like I've experienced it. It can be your own experience of value, but it's it's like quiet thoughts that come into your head. And sometimes I need confirmation because I'm like, okay, God, was that me?
1: Or is that you?
0: Because I'm not really sure. So, you know, even when God told me to do this crazy thing, I made a thermometer that I would would be a number thermometer because I needed to raise money. Right. And I would use a red crayon and I'd fill it in. And one time I was going, God, are you sure? Okay. Even after I'm already in the process of doing this and God to go over and look at that thermometer and tell me I'm not in this. So, you know, it's just that quiet learning to hear his voice. And like I said, sometimes I'm better at it than others. And Honestly, I think that he's speaking to us all the time. We just aren't always hearing it. Sometimes, just like for me, being out in nature, just that that peacefulness is like uh, just what nature does. So I don't. I just think that for every person, just knowing that God will, if you desire to hear His voice, He'll find a way. He'll find a way to speak to
1: you. That picture of the shepherd. I've, I've heard that analogy before and just that teaching and it, I'm glad you reminded me. And I hope a lot of listeners can just hold on to that and really have that picture in their mind and in their heart. I would imagine you, you needed that many, many times as you were a mom with your own daughters. I mean, it hit so much more personally for you. So for those who are listening to this, and certainly we know ladies that if you have experienced abuse in the past, if you're experiencing it right now, every resource that ARMS has is going to be included in the episode notes and you can reach them and they have so many amazing things for you. I also know some of you are listening, that's not your personal story, but maybe like Stacy, you're the mom looking at your own daughters or a best friend or a sister. So in maybe just even one minute, what would you tell them to do or not do or say or not say if there's just kind of that quick nugget? and of course, there's so many more resources for them as well. There's so much to learn and how to be supportive. But is there anything you can give us for a starting point?
0: It's really hard, and it kind of depends. Both my daughters were a little bit a little bit different situation. My, my oldest daughter married a pastor who was abusive my other daughter married someone who we already knew had a history of growing up with abusive fathers. So it was highly likely he was going to be abusive. We just didn't know how bad it was going to be for her. Since she's super loyal, we opted to be very careful and to love them where they were at. If you call out things, you can lose relationship with your, with your daughter and your grandkids. And so we wanted to be a safe place. So we were careful about how we spoke and what we pointed out. Our other daughter, it was harder to identify. Number one, she didn't live near us. And number two, they didn't share a lot with us. Neither one of them shared a lot about it. So we really didn't know how bad it was until afterwards, until they both got out. You know, I I think that you know, just making a safe place because my kids have boomerang. My, my sons have boomeranged all of them back and forth. And they have said to my husband and myself that we are so consistent and they all know where we stand. And so that makes us extremely safe place to come to when hard things happen. And so I think you want to make yourself a safe place. You don't want to go confront the abuser because then he will move her and your grandchildren away from you whether that's physically or emotionally, he will, he will divide. If he decides you're the enemy, he's going to do what he can to keep her from having a relationship with you. And so most important is to pray, right? Because my, I feel like my daughters are still in different phases of their own recovery process and uh, life continues. to happen. So they have other hard things they have to deal with. And one of my daughters lost her children to her abuser and it's just horrid. It's I'm, I'm just uh, horrific and heartbreaking and there was no reason for it. And honestly, I believe there were some things that were a little shady that happened to make that happen, but I won't go into that. But anyways, uh, just being a support to them and telling me love them and praying for them. And, you know, you have to remind yourself that your prayers are powerful and effective and, you know, God is faithful. He cannot go back on things he promises so he says if we pray he'll answer
1: and we need to believe that and that is the perfect segue to closing in prayer i ask every speaker to pray for the listeners as we close so stacy would you pray for our listeners lord
0: jesus i thank you lord for this opportunity and lord i pray for any who are listening now lord i don't know what part of my story spoke to them but lord Whatever was of you, I pray would uh, be sustained, and whatever is not of you, Lord, you would just remove that. Just let those nuggets that they were supposed to receive bless them, God. If they're in abuse, I pray that they would have the courage and uh, the ability to reach out and and seek help, God. For those who have who have children in this situation, that they could also reach out, just so they can be ready when their kids are ready to come forward and and seek some help for the abuse they might be suffering lord for those who are seeking your direction in obedience to you god what what is next for them maybe they've been out of abuse maybe they've never experienced abuse like myself but what is it you're calling them to lord give them ears to hear a mind to understand and a heart to receive what you have for them god and lord heal the broken hearts that are listening to this uh, podcast right now lord because you are the one who restores our souls. So Lord, we just cry out to you. And I thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your faithfulness. No matter what we're experiencing, those things never change. I thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
1: Amen. Thank you again so much, Stacy. Thank you for sharing your story, the, the funny moments, the deep moments, all of it. And for anyone out there who's listening and feeling a tug that you want to do something, you want to get involved, you want to help the training to become a leader for the Her Journey program, where you can you can really be there through this curriculum and help and support women who are in abusive situations, or maybe coming out of it from decades in the past, but still have healing to do. Again, every resource will be in the episode notes. So please check all of that out. And you know that you can reach out to ARMS, you can reach out to Calvary Mac there are people here for you. You are loved and you are not alone. So thank you ladies so much for listening. We hope you were blessed and encouraged by this story and that you come back next time for our next story. Good night, y'all. The Story Night Podcast, a ministry
0: of Calvary Mac.
1: For more women's stories, visit calvarymac.com
0: women.